Thank you for joining us for episode six of the Beer and Bible podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Dan. And we have a guest with us today. And I'm Tom. We got Dr. Tom Rundell with us, and we are going to doctor, surgeon. Not surgeon. Not surgeon. Okay, no, what is I'm not Tom? Not a medical doctor. Like the fake kind of doctor then? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> Bought it online. <laughs> um, we're discussing today's topic, um, church. Who needs it? Um, Tom has been gracious to join us, and um, we're kind of going to be looking at this idea of what the church is, why do we need the church, and even maybe tackle the question, do we need the church, and is the church doing what it should be doing in today's society? Hmm. No. No? <laughs> Which one yeah, are you we saying? Got that, we got that third question out of the oh, way. Oh, you're going for the third one then. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. But, but we're, kind, on. we're going to be kind of pushing ourselves, I think, towards this idea of um, getting people to reinvest themselves or invest themselves in their local church because that's, mm-hmm. I guess, that kind of answers the question, do we need the church or who needs it? But, um, yeah, we're going to be pushing people that way. So we'll open it up. What is this church thing? What is church? Uh, well, the word church comes from ecclesia, uh, which is out from and to. Uh, or more properly, like the people that are called out, essentially. It's like a way of indicating that in the Bible's terms that this is the new people that are called to do something uh, restorative in God's creation. So wait, it's not a building? No. I think we should get that out of the way first. Oh, crap. (laughs) Gotta change my notes. (laughs) Church is building. Cross off. (laughs) Sorry. No, it's very clearly about the people. It's always been about the people. And it's about the people of God becoming the body of Christ on the earth. Um, Springing forward where he left off while he was here on earth and doing that in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's my short definition. Do you have short definitions? Yep. Yeah. That, that one wasn't bad. <laughs> that wasn't, was a no. short definition. Yeah. Well, the church didn't even have a building for like, what, the first 400 years until Rome took over? Right. Then they had all the buildings. Then they had all the buildings. <laughs> and we can talk about Constantine <laughs> and the church later. Did that benefit us? Hmm. No. <laughs> you're, you're just like answering the question right away. Now. You're not going to let them linger. It's like, <laughs> is the church doing what's supposed to right now? No. <laughs> Did Constantine help the church? No. <laughs> Let's move on. That's okay. And we're done. <laughs> the postmodern days are over. <laughs> I'm just going to say Jesus. You have the word no, and my answer will be Jesus to everything. There okay. We go. What is the church? Mm-hmm. Jesus. <laughs> Do we need him? Jesus. <laughs> So the church you're talking to, so the, you're, you would argue or you'd say the church is people. Yeah. And the people who are following in the ways of who? Jesus. Jesus. And it started when? When did this idea of church? Because you, you said the word ecclesia <clears throat> being this people called out from. It is not a, is it a word that is just used for what we would consider the Christian church? Um, that, I'm not sure in popular Greek Koine Greek. I'm not sure if it had a double meaning in the culture. That's a good question. Well, and Acts is used to describe the angry mob as well. The ecclesia was the, the angry ecclesia that came out. Hmm. So it's yeah. not strictly just a yeah, group of people. And that would fit the word. Faith. That would fit the word because it's the people that came out. Yeah, a group of people who came mm-hmm. out. So what's the church coming out of? 
the world. Yeah. It's like levitating out. <laughs> <laughs> the buildings float. The buildings float. <laughs> oh, wait. Church isn't building. Church is not building. Right, right. <laughs> that was probably the worst thing. That, uh, we go into church. There's an awesome C.S. Lewis quote, though, that I'm going to share. And then I'm going to turn it over to Tom for a minute because he's the expert here. Oh, After right. all, he's, he's, he's the, the doctor. doctor. Yeah, he's the doctor. So that's like, <laughs> ask the doctor. <laughs> Uh, this is C.S. Lewis. He says, It takes all sorts to make a world or a church. This may be even truer of a church. If grace perfects nature, it must expand all our natures into their full richness of the diversity which God intended when he made them. And heaven will display far more variety than hell. Dang. That's really good. That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> We've wrapped this twice already now. <laughs> Who wants to argue with C.S. Lewis? No, nobody. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to argue with C.S. Lewis. I like how that, like, um, talking about that, uh, how there's so much diversity within the body of Christ. Because that's really, if you dive into the Bible, that's what the church is defined as, is the body mm-hmm. of Christ. Which, you know, I, there's lots of parts inside and outside of a body, and there's lots of diversity, but they all function in one way. So when I think of the church as being the body of Christ, I immediately jump to the idea of the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity, kind of that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if the church is a people that have been called out, and to answer Paul's question, like, what are they called out from and to... Um, it's a people that have been called out of the world and brought back into union with God, which I think that's something that we overlook in the evangelical settings often. It's like it's all about my individual salvation to get into heaven after we die. And it's not really about that. But we're brought back into union with God. So if you imagine that typical triangle trinity, where Jesus is the head and we are the body of Christ, that means that the church is actually a part of the Trinity. Like God has brought the church uh, and, and brought it back into communion with himself, back into union with himself, because we are the body of Christ. And Paul doesn't use that metaphorically at all. So we're the body of Christ, he's the head. That means that we have been brought back into union with the Trinity. Because Christ is a part of that, that Trinitarian Godhead. So we're a part of the Trinity, which is crazy to think that's what salvation is all about, is this brought back into union with God, a whole people together, diverse. But then we're filled with the second person, of the, or the third person of the Trinity, which is the Spirit. So it's like we are a part of actually two um, members of the Trinity and then put in right relation with um, God the Father, which that's what the church is is like it it's that mystical theological reality being lived out in the earth hmm. oh, my brain my brain hurt a little <laughs> bit after trying to digest that all at one time so you would you were arguing or you would say the church is a group of dis- distinct and diverse people who have been called out of this world to be placed back into harmony with god yeah, united back to God, back in relationship with God. Um, and brought out from the world in a in a sense that 
the world as it is in its fallen state can't be in union with God. That's why he's recreating and renewing it all. Okay. So we're a part of that recreation and union in advance before Judgment Day actually arrives and resurrection actually arrives. So we're a part in advance because of what Christ has done. So it kind of, he brings the future into the present and we get to experience it as a foretaste, as Paul says, mm-hmm. with the Holy Spirit. And then we're, uh, yeah, it just kind of, it even hurts my head to think about being united to the Trinity and that's what salvation is all about. But it's really big in the Orthodox Church, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church talks about that um, deification process of um, sharing the divine nature of God, as First Peter talks about. So uh, it's not foreign, it's not new, um, and it's not weird. It's been a part of church theology for thousands of years. So it's a unique way to look at it, because you would re- never, I think you'd really hear from an evangelical pulpit that the church is part of the Trinity. But you will hear them say the church is the body of Christ. Right. And and they kind of it's, that's almost synonymous. The idea that Christ is part of the Trinity, Jesus is part of the Trinity, and if we are part of the body of Christ, I guess the the natural segue into that is we are part of the divine Trinity. It's yeah. like Jesus's head was raptured and his body was left flailing down here, <laughs> voting people into office and stuff. <laughs> that's what flailing people do. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I like the uh, the historical aspect of co- being called out because there was a time and place in which everything was said, obviously, and the place or the world as they knew it was ran by the Roman Empire, which was um, kicking butt and taking names everywhere they went. And to be called out and be separate and be different from the world around them, especially for a Gentile who was by all rights part of the Roman Empire would be to say, I know my nation is on top of the world, but this is not my people. My people is this weird movement called the way. It's Hmm. the people that are following in the footsteps of this Nazarene Jesus. And that would be very called out. Like, Hmm. much more than us acting like the rest of the evangelical U.S. on a given Sunday. Like, it's very culturally called out. Um, and I wonder if some of the edge is missing from the church today mm-hmm. because it, we're not really being called out of a time and place so much. In fact, usually we throw ourselves right back into the modern-day empires of our world mm-hmm. rather than being distinctly different. Yeah, I mean, it is a way. Um being a part of the church, there's a way to be on the way uh, that Jesus spells out for us in his Mm -hmm. Sermon on the Mount and the way he lived. And that reveals to us the nature of of the Trinity. And if we are united to the Trinity, then it goes to show that we we should be acting like God acts and having a good understanding of what God is like then so that we can do that. But instead, we we divert and we go to the path of, well, maybe if we seize power by electing certain persons of influence into places I want them to, they'll give me my way. Uh, instead of subvert- subversively trying to uh, 
change things through the actual way of living that Jesus kind of paved out for us. Which goes like to Dan's original answer is, is the church doing, or the church in America doing what it's supposed to do? Yeah. And you said no, but that kind of gives. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to agree, like, like yes, no, they're not doing it. But there are, I, I believe there are segments that are. There are groups yeah. and collectives of people who are being called out, even from their out of their comfort zones, into something greater, mm-hmm. to do something, and to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Um, I don't want the no to sound like we're poo-pooing the, the, the local <laughs> no. churches and say, go and start your own, because that's what Belding needs. That's what the world needs is another no, church plant. No I offense ma- to I the Muslims. I made a mistake. I made a mistake. There, the answer should not have been a flat no. Kind of the, like a, because the... It, that was kind of like an Isaiah moment, or not an Isaiah moment, an Elijah moment, where he is crying about um, <laughs> that he's the only one, that there is nobody else righteous. Nobody else on the yeah, way. There's, there's nobody, nobody else. else like me. So, no, I made a mistake, as I often do, and I shouldn't have thrown a blanket no out there in regards to the church being on mission. There are certainly a lot of awesome churches to be a part of. But the, the I think the part that I when I heard the no and I kind of like was cheering with the no was this idea that um, the church needs to or should be stepping outside of the cultural norms that it's in and embracing the way of Jesus, like being the body of Christ. We keep going back to that idea of the body of Christ and what was what did Christ do while he was here and how was that reflected in how the church acts. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've I did not grow up with, so it's really interesting to me. And Tom had some cool notes on this because, believe it or not, we have notes when we go into these podcasts. Um, but I never grew up with uh, liturgy or um, creeds or like traditions within the church um, because I grew up charismatic Pentecostal. Um, we were just like, who can swing from the chandeliers longer sort of <laughs> Sunday had this, had this picture of like Sia's yeah. music video swing from the chandeliers <laughs> yep. run around the building like it's collapsing the walls of Jericho or something like that <laughs> but um, some of these notes piqued my interest so Tom uh, you talk about orthodoxy and the meaning of that well yeah like the early church was really like obsessed with orthodoxy to the point where they're calling councils all the time. Like, we really need to get this down. We need to figure this out. And, like, us in a post-enlightenment culture where we're really um, obsessed with facts more than truth, um, we, we think orthodoxy is having all of our doctrinal ducks in a row. And our, all of our bullet points are all checked. And so we have a piece of paper with all of our our bulletproof doctrinal statement that we sign our name on and say, okay, I got it right. But that's so external. You know, it's like, that's you might say you believe it, but the way you live might actually prove otherwise. Orthodoxy actually doesn't mean right belief or even right doctrine. If you look at the two Greek words that make up orthodoxy, you have ortho, which if you think of an orthopedic surgeon, they make bones straight again. So it's to make correct or straight And then doxa is the other Greek word, which means praise. So orthodoxy is more about correct worship than it is about correct belief. So they had this um, 
you know, they didn't have the New Testament as we have it until like the late 400s. So they had creeds that drove them and they wrote creeds. And this is what, uh, this is what drives our, but it wasn't right belief. They wanted to know how to aim their worship because if the Trinity isn't true, like if the Holy Spirit isn't part of the Godhead, then we should not be worshiping the Holy Spirit. Or if Jesus isn't divine, then we should not be worshiping Jesus. So they had to really nail down this, um, this doctrine of the Trinity so that they can aim their worship properly. So orthodoxy means to write, uh, rightly aimed worship. And that was what their primary um, obsession was. And that doesn't mean that they didn't care about like belief and praxis, uh, all that. They believe that if your worship was correct, then it would lead to what they called orthopathy, which is uh, rightly aligned affections. So I love pizza. I love my wife. If I have those in correct order, my life is wonderful. You know, like... If I love pizza more than my wife, this is not, that's not a properly aligned affection. But if I love my wife, so if you order your affections properly, then it makes life flow better. So if you have the right praise, then it leads to properly aligned affections, orthopathy. And then if that's in line, then it just seems to follow that your orthopraxy or your practice, how you act out in the world would also be in line. So they had like this Trinitarian ortho, orthodoxy, orthopathy, orthopraxy that were all tied together. So they, you won't really find uh, outside of the Apostles' Creed, you're not going to find people like being sticklers of little pet theologies that they all love. They just thought, this is, this is what's essential here. Let's get our worship aligned and then everything else falls in line after that. The rapture's in the Apostles' Creed, correct? Of course. <laughs> of course the rapture's And dispensationalism. And, and dispensationalism's <laughs> there, absolutely. You mentioned something at the beginning that I don't know if you meant to say it or not, but you said um, the first century church was more obsessed with the idea of truth over fact. Yeah. And how would you differentiate the, tr- the difference then between truth and fact in that statement then? Like facts are things that are like true in the physical sense, you know, like historical facts, they're quite important. Um, you know, just facts are things that you can kind of point to and say, this bottle is brown, you know, that's mm-hmm. a fact. Um, but truth, you know, I can read Lord of the Rings and there's a lot of truth within that. So fact and truth are not necessarily the same thing. There's a lot of people who want to make the two the same thing mm-hmm. and say, okay, I'm going to read this Old Testament passage, and it has to be factual in order for it to be true, and they elevate fact and truth on the same plane, and it's not necessarily the same thing. Facts are, yes, they're, they're quite important, but truth, there's, there's different layers of truth. <clears throat> there's narrative truth, and, um, I mean, there's, there's moral truth, there's... There's just a lot of different layers of truth that something can be true, and as Richard Rohr says, and sometimes it actually happened. You know, it's like <clears throat> there are things that are absolutely essential that they are both factual and true, and then you have some things that are not so essential that they're both factual. So you would say, like, the creeds would be truth and fact? They're, they're truth, and they're communicating mm-hmm. fact in a way that is true, like... Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. This is historically factual. We mm-hmm. gotta, if he didn't have a physical body, 
that was resurrected, then he's not, uh, he's not bringing humanity back into the Trinity. So it's very important that Jesus, like that, um, the hypostatic union, where he's both God and man fully, but yet not half and half or anything, but fully God, fully man. Because if Jesus isn't a human being, then humans aren't brought back into union with God because Jesus is still human today. Yeah. Like there's, there's a human being sitting at the right hand of God as a part of the Holy Trinity. And that just blows my mind to think about that. <laughs> and we're in that human being. He's in, we're that human body. And that's that body. mystical part of it, that part that's not, like you said, the truth and fact. We can't factually prove it by Googling and finding the fact that it is true, but right. the yeah. truth is there. That one is both factual and true. You yeah. know, it's like, it's true. It's, it's a fact that Jesus rose from the dead and he had a physical body and he ascended to the Father. Mm-hmm. Like, those are facts. But then the truth of that is that we're united to that person. We're united to him. And then that gives, truth is something that gives meaning, not just um, information. Yeah. Okay. That hopefully clarified it for people (laughs) out there. For those of you, because we don't record it, um, we don't video record this. Uh, Tom has that very wise beard going on as well. Just, it's just to almost paint the off white too. It's, 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 <laughs> I, the better the words coming out of his mouth, the more he strokes it too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you hear the strokes? <laughs> I like um, again time and place context. The idea that they were um, obsessed with properly directing their worship in a culture that was polytheistic and had hundreds of gods to worry about. And correctly directing your worship in that culture was not just radical, it was, like, absurd and insane. Um, um, They considered us atheists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because, well, you only believe in one? (laughs) That was crazy, yeah. (laughs) The atheist Christians. You're, like, 99% atheist. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's in a letter from, like, um, a Roman governor or something. Yeah, and then they they were mad at uh, all the Christians because they thought that we were bringing down the wrath of all the other gods that we didn't give a flip about. (laughs) So. Man. So, yeah, that blew my mind as you started talking about correctly directed worship. It's just we still live in a world where so many things are worshipped. And in order for us to have correct orthodoxy, it isn't so much about making sure that all of our doctrinal statements align. It's making sure that we're all united and not worshiping the gods of war, the gods of prosperity, the gods of hmm. um, sex in our culture. Like, Which and, have seeped into the church, especially, yeah. in the, especially in America, like especially the gods of war and the gods of prosperity yeah. have been intertwined with Yahweh. This idea that, um, yeah, I mean, we, we just follow Twitter after the bombings of Syria recently, and you see Christian pastors getting up praising destruction and death. Yeah, that's not the way of Jesus at all. That the church has been married to the, the state in a really unhealthy way, and we have blurred the lines between nationalism and our faith and we don't know where one starts and one stops. And so then if you say something against a nation, you know, like a church pulls the American flag off the pulpit, oh, Lord, 
I mean, you might as well have just committed blasphemy. You're going to anger people more than um, if you were to uh, say some weird theological statement that was really damaging to yeah. uh, actual like faith in like life. Working a Dan Brown novel into your sermon, yeah. right? Because <laughs> so they wouldn't know the difference. As long as I'm entertained, I'm no. fine. Just don't take the American flag off the stage. Yeah. And, and that's the whole idea of the original, the first century church being called out from something. They were they had to make the choice between following the way or being part of the Roman Empire, or even so being part of the Jewish temple. Mm-hmm. They, they were called out of that as well. And I think today we can happily be part of everything and anything we want to be part of and still be part of a church community. Mm. You know, the when the Roman Empire took over, uh, I guess didn't, not, they didn't really take over. They just gave all the freedoms to the church and gave all the benefits to the people going to the church so that it was like they weren't being martyred and persecuted anymore. And that was the rise of monasticism. That's where we get monks. Mm-hmm. Because they, they started looking around saying, we're so comfortable and nobody's growing anymore. Nobody's growing in their faith. Nothing is happening in the church. So they all went to the desert to, to practice what's called asceticism, which is kind of um, not really bringing pain upon yourself, but making life not so easy. You know, like fasting, giving up food for a couple mm-hmm. days is asceticism. It's, it's really beneficial to your spirit and it's really hard to do. So that's what they called asceticism. So that's where it comes from because these monks started saying, we need to retreat to the desert. If we're not going to be persecuted, we might as well persecute ourselves. So what I hear you saying is the church right now in the Western world should move out to the desert. Yeah, because... <laughs> Coachella. Because the helter-skelter's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all go to um, New Mexico. There we go. But jo- all joking aside, I mean, it is something that maybe the church does need to do to separate itself once again, to be called out from something, Hmm. to remove itself from the comfort of agreeing with the powers that be. Both both from the pulpit and from the pew. Yeah. I definitely think a lot of people are very afraid to speak truth because of social media and the blowback. Um, And it goes both ways. Like, usually... I can't find something to post about that's not going to offend one group or the other, you know? And then I think about my time and how I don't want to spend it debating people on Facebook. Um, And I think we do that in churches, too, to some effect, that a lot of pastors know what they can get away with and what they can't, but there's still this, uh, my paycheck comes from here, Mm. I can't offend everybody. And so I can't teach on this passage, which really convicts me. I have to keep it to, like, the status quo in a sense. And I just feel like there's a lot of offense because everybody's so concerned with correct belief more so than they are with correct worship. Mm. Or even they're more, they're more worried about correct belief than truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not, or not even correct belief. That's almost giving them too much credit, just their <laughs> belief. Yeah. Well, everybody thinks their belief is the correct belief. Yeah, that's true. But we got off track somewhere. I don't know where. And that I think was we're fun. still talking that about orthodoxy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we are. That's we're the best about part. Way. That is, we're like <laughs> traveling around this idea of orthodoxy is right worship. Yeah. But, and when you place it in the idea of right worship, it's the idea of 
Are you saying it's not a method but of what you are worshiping? Yeah, it, it aligns your affections in one direction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. toward aimed toward the Trinity yeah. and the truth that the Trinity is. Like the Trinity isn't a fact that God is three persons, and those three persons are distinct. And yet, you know, you can communicate all the facts about it, but yeah. the truth is not. It's so much bigger than that. That the truth is that God is this. Um, he God is diversity and unity in the same being. Um, God is perfect relationship. Uh, God is infinite love and creativity. And even though God is infinite, God's love is infinite, and God can't contain God's own infiniteness, and so creation is birthed out of that. That's what the whole Genesis 1 account is. This, God is you know, reciting this poem, and creation comes into existence. Yeah, it's a poem. It's a poem? It's really a poem. Genesis 1 is a poem. Ken Ham has told me over and over again that's fact. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No. It's truth. (laughs) It's true. It's totally true. It's truth. But it's poetic. It's poetic truth. And the the thing that is being communicated in Genesis 1 is that Israel is in exile, and they're wondering what kind of God Mm -hmm. that we're supposed to be aligned in worshiping. So they have this Genesis 1 poem. Because their whole idea of being called out of um, Egypt was to go and worship. That's what Moses says. Mm. Can my, I want to lead my people out so they can worship God. Yeah. And they go to the mountain. And build a cow. <laughs> and then they start worshiping <laughs> cows. <laughs> <laughs> I love Aaron's response. Like, hey, we just threw this gold in the fire and out popped a cow. cow. Yes. <laughs> what happened? I don't know. <laughs> Do you, don't you know that's how it worked in Genesis? It just popped out. <laughs> yeah. But Genesis 1 is this poem, like this infinite God can't contain God's own infiniteness, and so creation comes into being. So that's this beauty of the Trinity, that this relationship is so beautiful and so loving that it can't contain, even though it's infinite, and then therefore we exist. You give me hope for the church. (laughs) And I'm not saying that in a way that people who are listeners think I'm like, the church is awful, but... There, there is a positive momentum that the church is taking, mm-hmm. can be taking, and should yeah. be taking. We get so, we get so aligned, uh, tunnel vision, I should say. We get so tunnel vision with just Western American evangelicalism because that's the water we're swimming in, and we look at it, we look at it and say, "Wow, what a mess." Um, but I mean, if you look at the shifting of power. And by power, I don't mean, you know, coercion, but where the power lies, where the influence lies in modern-day church is not, it's not going to be in the West. It's not in Europe. Mm-hmm. It's not in America. It's even not in Latin America, but it's, it's shifting more towards that um, Eastern Asia with China and India and Korea. And that is where a lot of the, the power is now shifting that direction. So, I mean, if you look at the, the church history, it started, it was kind of this Jerusalem and then to Antioch, and then it moved to North Africa, and then it slowly went to Europe. And then it kind of went over to America, and now it's going all the way back east. Um, and so, just because we can't see what God is doing over there, I mean, it's, it's just booming. The church is booming and thriving and growing in ways that are changing people's lives and changing this world 
just because we can't see it because we're in this little box called America in evangelicalism doesn't mean it's not happening. Well, it's like um, Jesus said in Matthew 16-18, he said that um, the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. Yeah. Like, we think that like, this church might be coming to an end, but Jesus is like, uh-uh. Uh, it's not nah, going to happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> We're like, oh, the church is a mess. It's falling apart. And God, that's probably like, that's a fact, but not the truth. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Again, it's that tunnel vision. Like we're looking at our our <clears throat> reality, our churches in this in in West, in America, yeah. and we we neglect to see the churches, or e- even neglect to rejoice in the growth that happens elsewhere and the way that it's moving. And mm-hmm. to be fair, even Midwest America, like Northern Bible Belt America, mm. is yeah. the waters that we're swimming in. Yeah. Yeah, we are in Grand near Grand Rapids, Michigan, the center of yeah. <laughs> The Reformed Reform. Bible Belt of Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> the Northern yeah. New Jerusalem. You know, you say that we're talking about being called out of the world, and you mentioned that Matthew 16 passage, the gates of hell. It's actually not hell that's used there. It's the word Hades. <laughs> the gates of Hades, which is a Greek understanding. And if you look at the passage, like where Jesus is physically standing in that passage is Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi actually had a physical place, a geographical, factual place called the Gates of Hades. So this this group of people, they worshipped a god called Pan, which looked a lot like Tumnus from Narnia. <laughs> it was a he half, was a fawn. Yeah, it was a fawn. <laughs> pan pipe and he had a pan pipe. <laughs> oh, really? so he, jolly this, little creature. He was a jolly little creature. But Pan was this half-goat, half-man individual that the the Greeks worshipped. And the, the Greeks would call on Pan in the midst of war to induce panic and pandemonium. Oh. So this is where we get our words panic and pandemonium. So if Pan can come and kind of um, do his little magical dance with his flute, and, uh, I, don't, I just have these weird <laughs> images in my head of a, a goat man like dancing around, but... He would do that, and it was supposed to put the other army into a panic, mm-hmm. and then the other army the, can go and take them over and, and wipe them out. But Pan used to go underground um, in the winter, which is why winter got wintry. And I'm wondering, like, did Pan go somewhere <laughs> for us? Because we just had an ice storm in April. Um, but this, this, uh, he would go underground, and he would actually enter in at this one, it's a cave called the Gates of Hades, and they thought that's where he went in. So Jesus is standing in front of this cave called the Gates of Hades, and he's saying, I'm going to build my church, or my ecclesia, my people, uh, and the Gates of Hades are not going to overcome it. So he's bringing in all of this understanding of this cultural, like, pan worship was actually outlawed in Rome because it was too pagan. Just think of that. I mean, it's, it's goat and man hybrid, so you can imagine that they're doing. We got a clean rating, so I can't really yeah. get into much about what they did with goats. But it was just let your imagination go there. Let your imagination First go. First century furries. <laughs> so they got a little bit frisky, but they were trying to coerce Pan back out so that he would bring springtime back. Okay. So this is like the they red come light. Look district. at a calendar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the red light district of Caesarea Philippi. <laughs> yeah. Like where Jesus is standing, they're just like, "Why did Jesus take us here?" It's like standing on an eight mile in Detroit. Like, 
Why are we here? Can you imagine <laughs> taking your youth group down to eight miles? Mile, yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa, these people are like, you got prostitutes on one side, drug dealers on the other, you got strip bars, you got other bars. It's like, why are we here? That's the kind of place Jesus took his disciples to. And he's like, hey, guess what? I'm going to build my church right here on this rock, like a physical cave rock. On top of this, and the gates of uh, Hades cannot, prov- they cannot overcome uh, this movement of the kingdom of God. So this, this kingdom of God, that's really what the church is. It's like this beachhead of the kingdom of God into the fallen world, a beachhead of new creation that has been um, like started and like D-Day has commenced, you know. And then we go to V-Day afterwards. But uh, that was started here. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is going to prevail. There's no matter how bad this looks, no matter how frisky they get with the goats, (laughs) things are going to be okay. No matter how much panic or pandemonium shows up. Yeah, that's where my mind went right away. (laughs) Because I had never thought of that before. Pan and panic, pan and pandemonium. And the early church as they're being dragged out of their houses and thrown into the arena and being consumed by wild beasts would have every reason to panic. But yet the gates of Pan or the gates of hell didn't prevail against the church in spite of what could have been just sheer terror. Mm. They just continued to die acknowledging Christ as king. Going to keep keep on the way, keep living the way, mm-hmm. no matter what, like in the midst of this fallen human world, um, Jesus said, I'm going to build my kingdom right in the midst of it. So that's mm-hmm. what, I mean, if you think about the church being the body of Christ, and then Christ goes away, ascends to the Father, and then sends the spirits, that means that the church is the ongoing incarnation of mm-hmm. of God in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, so we are not just representing, but we are actually... <clears throat> And Im- not as perfect as Jesus, obviously, but we're an incarnation. So we should, we should be Christ. taking our youth groups to Eight Mile. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Depends on your youth group. Pray about it. <laughs> Just pray about that one first. Yeah. So he's saying when they says that the gates of the gates of hell are not going to. I mean, the gates are defensive mechanisms. Yeah. So that means that we're going to actively oppose in the way of Jesus. This fallen thinking, fallen uh, living, and we're going to be um, an expression of the kingdom of God in the world. And despite all the chaos that goes around around us, we still keep moving on. We keep moving on. We keep being faithful to the way of Jesus, whether being thrown to lions or whether we're Rome has adopted us, and now it's we're so comfortable that we're not growing any anymore. Yeah. In the notes, you said that the church was started as a beachhead of the kingdom of God in which God could have greater access to the world through us. You want to expound on that? Because I, when I think <laughs> of beachhead, I immediately think of like um, a World War II landing on the beaches of Normandy yeah. type of beachhead. That gave, that gave, as my son Nolan, who's the World War II uh, expert in our house, like he tells that's like the turning point of of World War II, but in a human sense, you know, where we have to, where we were using guns and bombs and killing and all that stuff. Uh, so the church as a beachhead of the kingdom of God is how God accesses the world because God doesn't coerce. God's not going to just show up and say, all right, 
we're done here. <laughs> Y'all stink. This is horrible. What are you doing? Like, God is actually patient. And, you know, God is long-suffering with us, and he doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants all to come to knowledge of the way of Jesus and live in it and find life. Um, so this, the church, when we're living according to the way and in the kingdom of God, um, we are those little, we're little like colonies, I think N.T. Wright calls them, we're colonies of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a fallen world. And then we can actually like uh, spread that kingdom's influence in an area, but not through violence or coercion or crusading. Uh, we got that wrong <laughs> back in the Tried day. Tried it, done it, didn't work very well. Didn't work <laughs> all that great. The crusading didn't save, it killed. <laughs> so we actually do it in a different way where we're showing the way of Jesus. And so when people encounter the church or even an individual within the church, they're, they're encountering something radically different than what they're used to. So we can't, around this table, create world peace. Probably not. Probably not. So the question I have is like the recent bombings in Syria that the United States did. Um, I'm a firm believer that the, the church's way is always a nonviolent way. And the church, if they're following in the way, would never endorse the loss of life, whether innocent or not innocent life. How does the church get in? What's the church's role in something like that then? How, how do you bring about. Um, the kingdom of God in in that, and this isn't part of the notes for everybody else. Yeah, there. this is just thrown right out there. This is <laughs> where are you at, man? <laughs> On page four, page four, in your print. I don't know. Like everyone is not that we don't have our hands on the people of Syria. Like yeah. they're far removed from us. Uh, so I don't know if there's something that you and I can like physically tangibly do to bring about the kingdom of God in Syria. But there's something that we can do to bring about the kingdom of God in building. Mm-hmm. You know, and we can we can call in a prophetic manner we can call truth out to Syria and say, you know, bombing and killing is not the way of Jesus. We can say those things even though it's not, we're not going to see the results of those. Yeah. Like the kingdom of God in Syria needs to be uh, active, and it is active in the church there. And it's always subversive. It's always um, we want to see like newsreel highlights of oh wow, change is happening all the time. But the kingdom of God has always been subversive, like a mustard seed. Mm-hmm. So for every horror story you see, as Mister Rogers says, look for the heroes. You know, there's going to be the people there who love Jesus and who are helping the suffering, who are feeding the poor, who are bringing the wounded in and bandaging them up. And yes, we can prophetically speak against all manners of violence and say this is not right, this is not supposed to be. Uh, But we don't have to be um, defeated in a sense and say, look, this kingdom of God thing is not working. Because the kingdom of God is never going to make the highlight reels. It's always going to be subversive. It's always the mustard seed that starts growing in the small places. Mm-hmm. So it's it's there. It, just because we don't see it on our Facebook timeline, um, that, that doesn't mean it's it's absent. So, And then we need to be doing those small mustard seed things around our community. 
And then if the church is doing that globally, then we see, and I think we've made a ton of progress. Like most people in the modern world don't think drawing and quartering in person is okay anymore. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's frowned upon. But the yeah. church endorsed that back in the day and burning at the stake and, you know, even the governments endorse that. And I think we've come a long way in uh, human rights and humanitarian efforts to where we say, you know, there's some things that people just need. They should have, like food and shelter and, yeah. a, you know, and the you, right to not be, uh, you know, violently killed. Yeah. And do you think NGOs and non-church organizations are calling that out as a lack of leadership from the church? Or a lack of prophetic voice from the church in the past? That's Could a good question. <laughs> like they're doing the job of the church by calling it out? I think that... I mean, you might be talking about the church as an institution. At that as an point, institution, right? yes. Yeah, not the group who are called out, not what Jesus is considering the church, but right. what the church might have... What the, the general public thinks of as the church in the Western world. Right, that the institution. I mean, yeah, probably they missed the ball on a lot of things. Yeah, and some people, individuals, had some vision and passion that the church didn't have enough room for, so they started their own thing. They were called out the church to do something. They were called, called out. out the institution of the church. Yeah, yeah. Like there's the small church, the small C church, yeah, yeah. the institutional church that exists for its own. I mean, all institutions are concerned with their own survival. Yeah. There's people with salaries, there's people, there's buildings, there's bills, there's overhead, you know. And if something is institutionalized, there is a self-protective thing that is just naturally a part of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also supposed to make enough room within that because the, if Jesus was fully God and fully human, that I think that the church can be an institution and the movement of God. It yeah. can be a human institution and a divinely uh, inspired. It's not one or the other. Right. There's it, not a it's perfectly either. both. Yeah. You know, it's it is an uh, hypostatically unioned <laughs> thing. You know, mm-hmm. the human part's imperfect, obviously, because we're imperfect people. Well, we had, <clears throat> you know, we've been talking about the church a lot, um, <clears throat> but I think everybody who thinks of church. Um, is immediately going to think of, well, a pastor should be in charge there. Or, well, my pastor leads my church. Um, And so what's the deal with pastors? Like, where did that start? Um, And why why do we need pastors? Sorry, Paul. Sorry, I'm not in charge of this (laughs) church. Sorry, Tom. Sorry, myself. I'm not in charge of this church here. All all of us are pastors of sorts. Itinerant preachers, that's all. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, why? What's the big deal about a pastor? Why can't um, communities just skip the whole leader thing and hang out at home? That's a good question. And the word pastor is actually not used in the Bible ever. Don't say that out loud. Oh, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Paychecks on the line. Paychecks are on the line here. (laughs) But the word we get, um, pastor, is translated uh, is the same word for shepherd. So in John, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, and he's calling himself the good pastor. If mm-hmm. we were to translate it, you know, across lines, we it's translated in Ephesians four eleven as pastors. You know, I give you pastors and teachers and that whole apostles and prophets. And I'm totally getting them out of order, but I don't care. <laughs> but um, 
it's not important to get the it. Truth there. <laughs> the truth is there. The truth is there. The facts were out of line. <laughs> but that's what that's the only time it's really ever translated as pastors. Every other time it's going to be translated as a shepherd. And why do we need pastors? Because people are sheep. <laughs> the system. Like we don't organize ourselves on our own to do things. But when someone calls us out and like organize us to here's a vision, here's this here's this idea, and if it's kingdom minded all all the more better. Uh, but that's really all it is, is we need someone to shepherd us in around something in in a specific location. You know, in a Almost keep people thing. on track. Yeah. So even for like house church listeners, that person that initially said, we need to do this. We, I'm going to call my friends. I'm going to invite people to my house and we'll worship together in my home. That, in a sense, is being a pastor in the sense that they brought the flock together. Yeah. Yeah. That was a leadership. In anybody who leads a flock or shepherds a flock brings them mm-hmm. together. The idea, if you don't have a shepherd for a group of sheep, they go whichever way they want. Yeah. Not that they're doing anything wrong going the, the other ways, but when you are shepherding a when you have a shepherd that leads them all in the same way, they have a kind of a united vision for that mm-hmm. community. Yeah. I think a pastor is someone uh, who has a vision of the kingdom of God expressed in their context mm-hmm. and then calls people who have a similar passion on board with that vision. And those people would have not done that otherwise. Yeah. They wouldn't have had the initiative to go and do it on their own. Um, to organize themselves and say, let's sing hymn 533 today. And, you know, like, <laughs> they, they just don't have that. So I think pastors are still needed. I think pastors, like the understanding of what a pastor is and does has morphed, but it's always morphed and always will morph according mm-hmm. to what culture, um, the needs within the culture are. So that. So I'm hearing that pastors are so needed then. They're so needed. <laughs> They're so needed. Keep your pastors. Yeah. Uh, and if you actually Give think Give them a raise, of, actually. Yes. <laughs> I was actually going to say that. <laughs> because if you think of shepherds, they didn't just lead the sheep around just because they needed an extra hobby. Like, they led sheep around as a career. That's mm-hmm. how they, And the sheep, in turn, provided milk and wool and, in some cases, like meat, you know, like... They lived off of the sheep, but they protected and led the sheep at the same time. If you look at mm-hmm. an old modern day, even like a shepherd today versus back then, um, they don't just keep sheep because they want a lot of pets. You know, like <laughs> I get this when I read Psalm 23, it is picture like this Jesus who's walking around with a crook. And he's like, come on, my sheep. I have a whole bunch of pets. And this is they're so cute. I love all these sheep. But if you think about a shepherd back in the day, they were business people. You know, they ran a business of shepherding, and the sheep provided things for the business. And in return, the the pastors were protecting the sheep and organizing the sheep and feeding the sheep and uh, making sure they had water. And so it was like a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. So why do people need the church? Why do people need the church? Um, before I <coughs> begin to wax eloquent on <laughs> this point, no, maybe not eloquent, <clears throat> but I'm just going to announce right now that we're going overtime, 
and that's fine. Yeah, we are. Right? Yeah, it's fine. It's going in the OG. We, we have a guest, so... Yeah. we got 100, 120 gigabytes worth of memory control. <laughs> We're good. So it's going to be the Long Commuters podcast today. <laughs> um, when I f- think of the church and why I want people to begin plugging back into their local communities and setting aside differences and being united... Um, one, this quote comes to mind again, it's C.S. Lewis, um, but he says in such a fearful world, we need a fearless church. And I turn on the news or just look at my Facebook thread or you name it. There's fear everywhere. Everything is so fear driven in our society, in uh, the Western world. It's all who's trying to kill us what government is conspiring against us, what political leader is going to ruin us. It's always Mm fear-based. And the church, the early church, had every reason to be afraid because they were being hunted down, dragged out of their homes, and persecuted. But fear did not control them as a people. And they continued to love the people that were persecuting them. They continued to serve those persecuting them. And I just feel like the church, what could really change our culture and destroy racism at its core and hate at its core and violence at its core would be if we learn to become more fearless. Mm, that's a good point. I just feel like the church should be a breeding grounds for courage and for strength because we... Um, we find ourselves in this community that has a direction that is powerful and has existed for thousands of years. And so I just really feel like not just our young people, but like millennials, Gen Xers that feel like the church is irrelevant or that the church is responsible for, we'll just say it, Donald Trump, things like that, that they're missing the point because the church goes way before it goes back before America. It goes back before um, Europe. That this movement is ancient and it was fearless. And they changed the world. And that we can still change the world. But we need dedicated people that decide to put aside fear and hate and indifference to what's going on in the world and just jump in. I think we really need that now as much as ever I think so that's I mean the church is that is the it's the institution that is dedicated to the spiritual advancement of humanity and if you opt out of that um, you become a part of the problem because you're saying I can do this as an individual Mm-hmm. And spiritual advancement happens in community, and it happens over time. You know, if you think of, uh, even if you think of like the the evolution of human thought from ancient Hebrew and Mesopotamian culture all the way to now, like how we've come as a people, uh, God has been guiding that, and in most recent times, He's been using the church to guide that. And yes, there are a lot of churches, small c churches that don't really catch the bigger vision of that. And it's more about, 
evangelism is just more about you know putting butts in the seats so we can get dollars in the plate um, if you look at um, kind of the long arc of the church the long arc of the church brings us to new creation and to be a part of that in the present is to be a part of that and to to say that I am going to be dedicated wherever I am to the spiritual advancement of humanity, stewarding creation, promoting justice, expanding the kingdom of God, um, not just as an individual and me and my Jesus and my spiritual life and my morality, but like I'm actually contributing to this ark. And when people dig in, they bring that ark a little bit lower and it's not so far away. But when people pull back and say, I'm done, I can't do this church thing anymore. Um, yes, you might not be able to do that expression of the church that you were hurt by or wounded by or are walking away from. But the the big C church, you know, the, the, the saints of the past, the present, and the future all combined in this arc of new creation where God is taking us all. Uh, don't pull from that because... Uh, that is how God brings the ark closer to humanity. We get closer when we're all pulling into this thing together with a greater vision than just, I, I want to expand my little church, little C church, to make it bigger or make it cooler or make it more impactful. Or when you look at the long arc of where God is taking it, that's you get excited about what God's doing. Yeah. Do you think that people are afraid to be associated with the church because of the spotlight that evangelicalism has taken in America? Like, I'm talking about people that are socially conscious and aware, and they may not have any problem with Jesus, but they definitely have a problem with the church, and they're worried that any church is going to give them that guilty by association mm. label with their friends and family. Well... Western evangelical conservative Christianity, yes, that's. Uh, I'm fearful to be <laughs> you know, associated with that. But I feel like that, that, I don't know, maybe our generation is moving away from that a little. Maybe it's just the circles that I'm in. But I feel like it's not that you they're are part of a congregation. I'm church. a part of United Church of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> We're an open and affirming denomination, and <laughs> but the the whole like there is that fear of being associated with the terminology with the label Christian mm -hmm. that is still there, but it's still a redeemable label. It's a label that I think, and I don't want to go progressive conservative, but I want to the churches that are kingdom focused can <clears throat> take a hold of again and because we're part of the body of Christ can redeem and say this is what church and lowercase c and Christianity truly looks like mm -hmm. and it is seeking justice it is doing all these things it is not based on how you vote it is not based on what party affiliation you have it's based on Christ and when we start looking at the church being based on that and finding churches that base themselves on that that can accept either party coming together and saying we are agreeing on Christ that that's where I think the church has a great advantage of impacting its circle of influence, its community mm -hmm. Do you think that people who are disgusted by intolerance 
run the risk of being intolerant um, by not <laughs> plugging into and committing to their local church. Intolerant of intolerance. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think the big the big problem that runs at the root of what you two are talking about is just a lack of imagination. Like we mm-hmm. cannot see beyond what is presented to us on our Facebook highlights, our timelines, the media, news stories, and all of the hot-button buzz, whatever it is, each week it changes. That captures our attention so much. It captures our focus, and we're pulled off, and we don't have the imagination to see the bigger picture, the global picture, and even, like, the, the picture of past, present, and future all put together of what God is up to and doing and taking this whole thing. And we get so tunnel vision on just that one story, just that one issue, just that one um, hot button political, moral topic, whatever it is. We get so tunnel visioned on that that we lose our imagination for what the kingdom of God is actually doing in those subversive and small things all around us. Uh, And then we get all defeated and we quit and we walk away or... We get disillusioned or disenfranchised and all those things. And, um, but if we can engage our imagination again and start looking at the bigger picture and the longer term, uh, I think that we're going to see a richer church because a lot of the churches that those people would be walking away from are churches that don't have a vision beyond you know, their fiscal year. <laughs> you know, it's like... We just need to make it to the next paycheck. We just need to get to the here. We just need to get bigger. We just need to... They're only concerned about themselves as an institution. Uh, If we can engage our imagination and we can see what God is doing globally and even over all of human history and where he's taking us, I think that we can be encouraged at the progress we're making. And that's an interesting Mm -hmm. statement, saying the idea of being kind of looking at the church globally and historically because we are at a pinnacle of information where we have access to all this information Very yet we're point. so tunnel vision that we're worried about what's happening only here we don't know how to find the information that matters you know like yeah. we don't we don't know how to see it doesn't sell it doesn't it doesn't it's sell sexy. so it's not it's not brought to us as quickly yeah it's totally not sexy yeah <laughs> but um if we engaged our imagination i think and we learned how to see mm-hmm. uh we have like in our culture, everything is just presented to us on a platter. Information is presented on a platter. Our emotions are presented to us on a platter. Every time we go to a movie or engage in, you know, an engaging service at church or a concert or, you know, everything is handed to us on a platter and we forget how to engage our own imagination and to look ourselves at things, for things, to go hunt and find and find our, our truth in this uh, you know, we can't read the, the story of the Lord of the Rings and find the truth anymore. We're so concerned with the facts. Where is Hobbiton? <laughs> <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> New Zealand, of course. I'm now we know Zealand. where it is. We can go visit it. Let's go. So we need to learn to engage our own imaginations again because everything's handed to us on a platter. And when you know despair is handed to, a, uh, uh, handed to us on a platter uh, through our Facebook feed, and we're like, oh, the church is horrible it's not doing what it's supposed to do it's because we've lost the ability to imagine what god is actually doing in the world and to go look for it and the evidence for it 
there are I love that page the humans of New York mm-hmm. have you seen that yep and they tell <laughs> yeah. the stories of humanity and they're beautiful stories you can go find those stories um, and it's not just trying to you know be ignorant of the bad stuff that's actually going on it's just putting that in perspective mm-hmm. we're, we're still going we're wow. still going yeah <laughs> okay if we're still going <laughs> then this was really meaningful to me we Tom, might cut this into a two-parter later on speaking <laughs> of cutting Tom's playing with scissors sorry there's something's falling off my right. phone case <laughs> um this was really meaningful to me because Tom, your doctor of your doctorate is in spiritual formation. Yeah, and, and masters. Yeah, and masters. And because it was just that cool. <laughs> <laughs> so you've studied the paths. We'll call them paths in which to carry people uh, closer to right relationship with God, and through storms, and you've weathered a ton of storms um i really hope your book gets published so everybody can hear your story working on it um yeah (laughs) but you came up with this really cool timetable of what it looks like when you so if somebody's listening to our podcast and they're like well what's going to happen to me if i go to church Hmm. you know how does how is this going to look how could i change what do you mean that i have to do all these things and believe these things and um, I would just want you to walk through. You set up all these chairs just to kind of preface for you. Um, not that you're incapable of talking for yourself, but you set up these chairs and you talked about these phases of Christianity and how we um, move from kind of chair to chair, taking a new seat as we progress, and that it's really more of like a rotation that we keep coming back to. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to take us home with this one. Okay. The, well... Like, spiritual formation is about the development of your character to be more Christ-like. Whereas discipleship in, like, the modern-day terminology is more about learning the information of the Bible. You know, learning all the facts you need to know and all the skills you need to have in order to do the stuff you need to do. Which is very different than actually developing virtues and character that make you a different person and transform your heart. So that's the just the difference between formation and discipleship um, when I use those terms. Christianity was not meant to save us from hell and get us to heaven, like I was told <laughs> at the teenage, <laughs> the, the church of my teenage <laughs> life. Um, I think we all agree on that, right, around here at least? <laughs> yeah, that was like... <laughs> That's the Christianity that was kind of posed to me in my teenage years at the very conservative church that I was at, was um, God saved you, and now keep your nose clean. And that's pretty much all there was to it. And I became really good at keeping my nose clean on the outside. Uh, You know, I had presented everything that I could, and I mean, dang, I taught myself to read and write Greek at 17 because I was that dorky. (laughs) But I was that excited about my faith. I wanted to learn everything I could. And I was passing out tracks on weekends in downtown Plymouth. And, uh, you know, I was doing everything that they asked me to do. And they were applauding me the whole way. So I thought, I have arrived. <laughs> you know, this is it. I'm 17. I've done it. <laughs> I know. I am 17 and I have done it. And they treated me like I arrived. 
they acted like I did because everyone else was kind of quote unquote lukewarm. <laughs> they weren't passing out tracks on the weekends and they weren't learning Greek on their free time and you know nobody else was doing this stuff and I was so it felt like I had an edge on everyone. Uh, so I had this conversion moment where that got me into that phase. I converted into the faith uh, and I got into the, like chair one, you know, if we talk about the chairs of spiritual development, is the zealot's chair. You just get so excited about your faith. And we use the term being on fire. You know, I am on fire. And it's kind of a morbid terminology if you think about it. But <laughs> Nero. You're just so excited about your faith and you want to learn and you want to grow and you want to do all the things everyone's asking you to do in the way they're asking you to do it and then they applaud you and you think I I got it this is it um, and if you think about it it's actually a natural progression in just development of new thought in any phase like those of you who are gluten free like you remember the day you switched and you threw all the gluten out of your cupboard and now all of a sudden you're like the zealot of gluten free living and gluten is the enemy and the devil from Satan, and now you're trying to go and convert the rest of the world out of their evil gluten ways. Like, you've all met those people that are trying to convert you and tell you how bad something is that they now hate, that they just discovered. I hear that it's a mind control drug. It's a mind control drug. <laughs> oh, it's a new one now. No, I'm just <laughs> Oh, shoot. Go ahead, I digress. <laughs> you digressed. Yes, you did. That's okay. <laughs> So that's the zealot's chair. We just get, we get converted because our previous way of life is no longer capable of taking us forward. So we have to make a conversion point. You know, for those gluten-free people, it's like my stomach hurts too much. I gotta switch. So for the the Christian, you're like, I just have this. As Wesley said, my heart is being strangely warmed or something. Some I need to move forward in this. So a conversion happens, and then you get zealous. That's your first chair. You're totally excited. And then all of a sudden, that zealousness fuels the second chair where you're starting to learn everything you can about your new faith, discipleship, memorizing the Bible, studying the Bible, uh, learning the Greek, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you know, you're just like, you're just diving into this and getting all the information you can out of it in this second chair. Uh, you become that discipleship person. And then the third chair is that you want to do something with your information. So you sign up to serve in kids' ministry or, um, you know, you you're want to minister in some way. You want to do something. So then you start serving in some capacity. And if you think about how, like, Western Evangelical Church is set up, it stops there. You know, we want to get people converted, excited, trained, and then deployed in the ministry. And then we're good. All good. And as soon as you get to that phase, like, there's nothing else for you. We don't have any more need of anything. We don't have any other programs. This we're now the company line. It's, <laughs> that's everything we need from you. But that's only half the journey. That's only half the journey. Eventually, you hit the wall where all of a sudden you're like, all of my past junk, psychological, is now preventing me from moving forward because I've buried some things. I've never dealt with some things. I've had some past hurts and traumas that I've just ignored. And now God wants to make things right inside of you. And he wants to actually take you on an inner journey into yourself and have an encounter with God inside of your own soul. Not just the conversion moment that got you excited, 
but an actual, like, you're meeting with God on a new level in a way that's healed you and set you free in a way that's it's never happened before, in a deeper level. And that's the fourth chair, the inner journey, where you go inward. You start learning about yourself, and you start healing. You start correcting the wrongs done to you and by you over the past years. Um, and then when you take the inner journey, you come out the other side with a really clear vocation. Like, the fifth chair is, I really know what I'm supposed to do in life now. I know what my life is here for. Not just doing the ministry or getting excited about stuff, but I actually have aligned my life in one direction towards one thing, and I'm excited about it. And this is the way I'm going to make a difference in this world. And you experience that vocational call. And then chair six is you start integrating everything together. So everything you learned in that zealot phase, like you can make use of. In the discipleship phase, in the minister phase, you can actually integrate things and aim them in one direction. And then all of a sudden you find this freedom and effectiveness and clarity in your life that you've never had before. Uh, which I think one of the reasons that the church in the West is flailing about a little bit is because we only take people halfway. And there's another whole three chairs that we can take them through. But eventually that's not going to be, you know, you're going to run into a situation where you're just like, man, this way of living doesn't work for this new phase of life. And you find yourself back in chair one, experiencing a new conversion, being zealous. And it's more circular, but more like funnel circular. You're not just going in circles, but you're going deeper. And that's. I think the church can do this. I think the church can pay, take people on this journey. And when multiple people are finding their vocation and being healed and set loose in one direction towards God, we're going to see a much more effective church than people who just take them halfway and say, sorry, that's all we got. So who needs the church, Paul? Who needs the church? We all need the church. <laughs> we don't. The world needs the church. I think it's an, an integral part of what I think each of us are part of different church, small church communities that we see have are pushing us in directions to make us better as well and partnering with God and with each other to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. I think the people who need the church, everybody needs that community, but I think it's those who are really looking to make a difference outside of the two, like, blue or red kind of options in this world. The ones who are looking to make an actual real difference that's spanning from the past, like you said, the past, the present, and the future going on. Um, it, with this idea of the kingdom of God. Hmm. So who needs the church? The world the, needs the, the church. The world needs the church, yeah. <laughs> the world yeah. needs the church. Yeah. Because all the other options of either life change or cultural change or society change it doesn't happen it doesn't work it's not enough it's, it's not enough it's, yeah. and it's all about power mm-hmm. it's all about who's in control and who's able to tell you how to live a live life just switching prisons switching despots yeah. yeah and everything we've talked about tonight seems to point in this direction that the church isn't just about you and your preferences and what you find to be convenient or even the about aligning yourself with only people that are like you. It's about the beauty of diversity, um, which I think our country needs that. Mm-hmm. It's about 
overcoming fear with love. Our country needs that. It's about growing as a person um, and not being closed-minded and having tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. And we need that. And so I think that there is much that the church can teach the world. And if you haven't found the right church, um, there's one of two answers. Either there are there is a good church out there for you or stay where you're at and be the church there. And... Uh, I think depending on who you are, one of those two answers would speak to you. But I think that we all need that community. It's something, our faith isn't practiced uh, solo. It's not a solo faith, Mm -hmm. which may differentiate it from um, some of the Eastern like meditation type religions where you can just go into your closet and do this in the morning and then you've centered yourself for the day. But Christianity is kind of messy because... It's designed to be experienced with people, mm-hmm. and people will um, make a mess of things. That they do. So, what are you drinking, Paul? What am I drinking? Nothing anymore. I finished both of them. Um, I was drinking from um, Rogue Brewery, a hazelnut brown nectar. It looks like me on the front, kind of. <laughs> Um, you have more does. hair. I have, to be fair, you yeah, have hair. I'm not balding that much yet, but that's because I haven't had a haircut recently. Um, no, it's been good. It's nice and sweet. It was easy to drink. Um, not as much hazelnut as I was, as I was hoping, mm. but it, it was good. I decided to drink the first craft beer that I got into, which is Dead Guy Ale, also from Rogue Breweries. We didn't plan that. No, not <laughs> planned. Um, but this beer was the first one. This was my gateway drug. Into craft beers. <laughs> the only way to go. I'm drinking Bell's Amber Ale. It's an American Amber Ale, and it was glorious because I love Amber Ales. And this one did not disappoint. It was uh, kind of had a nutty flavor, but it was it was a little bit sweet, but not too sweet. It tasted like beer and not some flavored beer that I can't stand. <laughs> it actually had a good beer flavor simple nutty sweet and amber which is the way to go loved it very good so we have an upcoming beer and bible at the horse's mouth on april 25th wednesday april 25th around 8 15 8 30 we head over there um so you can meet us over there tom where can people read more about you or listen to you speak i have a page dr tom rundell um on facebook and uh, I have some messages that I post at uh, thrivechurchmi.cc. I have some some messages, videos posted there. Uh, hopefully a book soon. And then uh, website and podcast and all that is in construction right now. So you, more to come. You run a coaching ministry also. Yeah, I coach pastors and leaders in spiritual formation. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of guiding people through the stages, uh, helping them define a vocation, a vocational call, and then aim it in that direction. So, um, yep, I started Liminal Living LLC, and uh, so it's official business. I got business. <laughs> you got business. To do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that is all fairly new and under construction and moving forward and more to come on that really soon. Well, yeah, due to sickness and uh, winter and 
overall death everywhere. Um, <laughs> we've been unable to meet now for a good month and a half, so it's good to finally have you here. Yeah, it's yes. nice having you. And, um, Welcome anytime. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it very much. I'll be back. You can be a resident expert on stuffs. Fun. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll quote you when we when we like. Yep. Tom said. Exciting time. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for putting up with us for an hour and twenty minutes. Um, that's like three New trips. record. Yeah. We'll, but um, we'll be releasing another episode soon. Have a great day.